Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. This is part two of my conversation with Gene Youngerman on stack testing and representative data. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so one final very broad question about data, then maybe we get into a little more um, stack testing practical, but there's a lot to data. Data quality, error, propagation of error, bias, things that I know you think about a lot, a lot of people, they start to think about it and their head hurts. So you've addressed these things a lot during your career. Broad comments, Gene, on these kind of concepts, how they fit into stack testing. And maybe that's a totally different conversation that we need to have. But I at least wanted to give you one more crack at just giving your perspective on those topics and how it relates to stack testing. I can do that. And and everyone wants their data to be rock solid. Everyone wants to look at a piece of paper and say, man, if it says 33, it's 33. And, but it's not. Any given measurement is only an estimate of the true value. That's, that's, that's an interesting concept. But a measurement is always only an estimate of the true value. And so if you make two measurements, say I make a measurement of 33 and 29. Those actually sound like pretty good numbers, right? But is one of them wrong? Is 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 did the true value vary, or do I have two different estimates of the true value, or is the measurement system flawed? I mean, there's a lot of things to think about in this, and what this does for use of data, for end use of data, it goes back to that problem we talked about earlier. Maybe we haven't talked about it yet. But it talks to the problem of method selection and method implementation and making sure that your experiment is designed to measure and answer your yes-no question. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to throw a, a thought experiment at you, Colin. How many ways can you think of to measure distance? Length, distance, that the same thing. How many ways can you think of? Or, or, or rattle off four, just thinking about it right off the top of your head. Not like units, but like actual ways to measure the distance from one point to another. Yeah. What tools? Well, I can go out to the – I'll think about the, the, the front yard I'm looking at here. So I could go out with a tape measure, and I could measure mm-hmm. I could measure the point from the mailbox to the uh, sewer grate. Yeah. I could open up Google Earth, and I could actually do a little – I could do a little measure bar there. I mm-hmm. could do my old right. old school, you know, heel to toe pace walk <laughs> that, right. Right. to measure that distance. <laughs> I could eyeball it. I could I could uh, I could imaginarily put a couple of basketball hoops in right. between laying on their laying flat. So a couple mm-hmm. ways, or a bunch of ways. Yeah, you could you can imagine taking a yardstick and flipping it over itself flipping and counting it how many yardsticks yeah. you did. I mean, and for that matter, you could imagine doing the same thing with a ruler, with a six inch ruler, except. Okay, and so how many different tools are there for length? Well, you can imagine anything from a micrometer, right, to an odometer, right, to however the heck it is they measure interstellar difference using light shifts, right? 
And all of those are ways of measuring distance. Okay, so now let's let's go, let's ask the next question. Do you want to measure the thickness of a quarter inch piece of plywood with a yardstick? No. no, no, you want to use a caliper, right? You yeah. just take your caliper and you go, there it is, it's a quarter inch, okay? On the other hand, do you want to measure the distance from your mailbox to your sewer grate with an odometer? No, yeah. or a micrometer, no. So, so the point is, because you and I, because distance is easy to relate to, the point is you have to pick the right tool, right? Yeah. If you can measure the thickness of a piece of plywood, you grab a caliper. If you can measure the size of the piece of plywood, you grab a tape measure. In either yeah. case, do you grab an odometer? On the other hand, if you're going to measure the distance from your house to my house, you can use Google Earth because we're thousands of miles apart. Yeah. So data. And so now you want to make sure you use the best tool, but then you want to try to understand what the data, what are the limits in the data? If I tell you that it's 33 feet from your mailbox to your sewer grate, and you go out with a tape measure, and it comes out to 32 feet, nine inches, are you going to tell me I'm wrong? I could be wrong. <laughs> okay, but but so then so then the question becomes: I like to think I like to think about numbers, not in terms of what a value is, but in, but in what it what it means it's not. So if we go, let's go back to our piece of plywood. You measure the thickness of that quarter inch piece of plywood. It comes out to quarter. Is it really a quarter of an inch exactly? It actually isn't. It tends to be just a hair under. Yeah. But but what it tells you is what it's not. So now instead of the plywood, let's use let's use the sewer grate. We measured it at thirty three. Okay. So thirty three implies that it's not thirty two, right? Because if it was 32, we'd have said 32 instead of 33. So 33 implies it's not 32 and not 34. But if I tell you it's 33.1, or let's go back to feet and inches, if I tell you it's 33 feet, three inches, then I've made enough effort to know that it's 33 feet, three, and not 33 feet, two. And... That's where the sensitivity of data comes in. And that and we I think we get into real those of us who live in the spreadsheet and calculator world get into real trouble because it's real easy to put in too many decimal points. It's real yep. easy to imply something that I that's no longer true. Does that, that make sense? It does. I yeah, think. it does. As soon as you because I wouldn't have said you were wrong on the thirty-three feet when it was 32 point whatever i just said oh yeah okay yeah he's the, yeah, he's yeah. Yeah, but right, as soon right. as you say 33 because, feet three inches i'm like okay well now if i go out and measure it that's what i expect it to be right right and if you came out with 33 feet three or 33 feet two you'd say yeah those are the same but if you came out and you came out at 32 feet nine you'd say no yeah and and so so we've you've put on an extra degree of sensitivity or an extra degree of accuracy is what that is that's that's interesting. It's a good way to think about limits and information that we're presenting and and all that. It it's fine. It was a way I finally convinced myself to teach significant figures to junior level scientists who'd only seen a calculator. What do you mean twelve times twelve isn't one hundred and forty four? Well, it's not 144 because 12 implies not 11 and not 13. Yeah. And the other 12 implies the same thing. So if I take two of those and multiply them by each other, 
I've got somewhere between 121 and 170, 169. Do I really want to call that 144? Or am I okay kind of calling it 140? And the answer is I'm kind of okay calling it 140. Yep. No, that's good. And and that's a that's a very gross description of data propagation, but it's but it's an issue that happens. The other thing that happens a lot in our world, and that is the process world or the stack measurement world is we tend to subtract numbers. We'll have a, we'll decide that we need a, a background blank in an analytical result. And all of a sudden we'll take something, we'll have an analytical result of five and a blank of one and we'll call it four. Well, that five wasn't all that good a five to start with, right? It was somewhere between four and six. And that one blank Eh, God only knows how good that is. It's probably between zero and two. And now all of a sudden, this five, which became four, has, instead of being five plus or minus one, it's like four plus or minus eh, almost two. And and so subtracting is, is just a way to get yourself confused. It also shows up in mass balance, if we're not careful. When someone tries to draw a mass balance around a unit, it's very hard to get to say, well, the stack number balances because it agrees with out for minus in. Well, you know, if it's ninety, if it's ninety nine percent control, it's only one percent coming out the stack. You can't do it by mass balance. Just can't. So, I have a real bugaboo about significant figures because I want them to show something as a shortcut of the error associated with data. But we also have to understand that all of our data all of our data, is an estimate of truth. It may be a very good estimate of truth. It may be a less good estimate of truth. Some some of our methods are plus or minus 30 or 40%. It's just the way they work. And then trying to take a plus or minus 30% and deciding that it's a number dead on, you can get yourself in trouble if you're not, if you're not at least cognizant of both that it's that it's quality data and it's met its requirements, but what its limitations are. Yep. You know, way Good too to, deep. Sorry. No, that's that's okay. A, it probably is a separate podcast, but I thought that was very good advice, and I haven't thought that much about significant figures in a while. But you know, hey, for practitioners, that's a big deal. It's meaningful. Right. Right. And one of the things is that that doing and this is this is almost an all four thing completely. Doing significant figures within a spreadsheet is not a straightforward thing. And so if you have numbers of varying magnitude in the same yeah. column, and now you say, well, I want to round to, you know, the second decimal place. Well, you got some of them that are 0.17 and you got other ones that are 14.29. Well, they're not, yeah. right? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. I, this is me waving my hands. Um, I bet nobody can hear me wave my hands, huh? <laughs> No, nah, that's good advice, Gene. It, it really is. So I want to, I want to, with the time we have left, I want to shift. We had good data mm-hmm. discussion. I want to shift back to stack testing and maybe some practical advice around. Okay. If I'm at a, if I'm at a company, I've got stack testing coming up. I'll combine a couple of questions I was going to ask you. Okay. What should I be paying attention to? I'm at the facility. I'm the EHS right. person at the facility. What should I, it's complicated. You know, we've got this, these other people, these other stakeholders, as you mentioned, that are involved, but what should I be paying attention to when the stack test plan 
is coming together? Like what are the watch outs that you can share? Okay. So, so I thought about this and, and to me, there's a couple of real keys as you're developing your test plan. One is making sure that your method selections there, method implementation. So, so the, the original question you had posed to me was what should I pay attention to in the test plan? Yeah. And, and method selection, method implementation, extended detection limit. That is, what is, what am I doing? How am I configuring what I'm doing? Because all of the methods have selections associated with them. And then finally, is it set up to get me a detection limit that's robust enough to show what I want to show? And those are really important. The next piece I think that's equally important is process operation. And whether that's a test plan issue or just an implementation issue, mm -hmm. it's still important because these test plans we write, especially the ones that are written by the very commercial stack testers, tend to focus on the testing. And and they don't do the loop back detailed process operations thing. So stack testers, especially the big stack testing company, they have these templated test plans. Of course, this makes great sense them from a you know an economic and an efficiency of operation sense and business sense but when you again mr ehs guy at the plant when you're looking at your test plan make sure that it feels like they've spent enough time or energy making it your plan and not somebody else's plan it's very tempting to just pull a paragraph here and a paragraph there and a paragraph here and slap together a test plan because that's quick and fast and it's what we've said we're going to do for you but make sure that it actually reflects your facility and the issues and the idiosyncrasies that between you and the stack tester you have identified as being part of the, the issues associated with this test. Right? Um, they're not going to be simple. Gene, moving on from stack test plan preparation and getting a little more general around communications for uh, EHS managers that are, once again, EHS managers that are planning, and they've got to communicate with all these different stakeholders. Can you tell me a little bit more about just the things that you've seen maybe that have gone wrong over the course of time and just any broad practical advice around that? I want to turn the whole what can go wrong question around and make it a best practices to do what can go right. Um, We've talked about this, you and I have talked about this, that we need to get everybody on the same plan. And you heard me talk about how we is everybody we. It's not just the all four we, and it's not just the stack test team we, and it's not just the client we. It's all of us because we are one group trying to pull a pretty recalcitrant system down the line. So, so the best practice is to make sure that our intra-team communication is way up to speed. And what do I mean by that? Well, on a simple case between the, between the stack test company, the all, four, the all four consultant and the client, we want to make sure that, that we're all ready to do what we want to do and that all of the phases of the client and all of the phases of all four and all the phases of the stack test company, of course, are all ready. On the client side, that means that the EHS guy who is making sure that the EHS stuff is in place and is maybe responsible for juggling this whole circus, he's talking to and he's getting buy-in because communication is not one way. We've talked about that. And if we haven't, it's clear. Communication is 
someone has to actually actively listen and not just talk. And so we want to make sure that the process guys understand what it is they need to accomplish and that it makes it from the test plan and the EHS side to the process lead to the actual process operator, that guy's that guy's day. And he knows what he needs to, where he needs to set up his unit and how long he needs to do it for. The other side of the same thing is that we have a test plan that tells us, that tells the stack test company how to configure and set up all of their things. And we want to make sure that the guys who do the testing, for whom this is fairly routine, understand the specificities of our particular program. And this applies up and down the line because what happens is we do all the planning at a fairly high level and, and yet we do the execu execution with a whole bunch of other very talented people, but they weren't involved in the planning. So they don't necessarily have the head state to have all of the wrinkles in their head. We want to get all the wrinkles right. So with that, I mean, uh, let's just talk about the cost of a stack test is high. We have to go in, we have to set up the plant, we have to bring in our stack testers, we have to run it in an odd way for a day or a week or whatever it is, but we don't even know the results for a month. And so the cost of failure is high, and so we don't want to fail. And so what we want to do is make sure that we're communicating as clearly as possible and as completely as possible with all of the people involved, because each one of them at some point is going to have a crucial element, a best practice. So, Gene, a couple of in-the-field questions. Uh, yeah. I've just got a couple of left. So uh, I'm curious. You've been out and about a lot. So my question is, what are some of the best lessons learned that you've had out in, out in the field? Or, or what went wrong um, that you wish you could have avoided? And, and maybe, that's its own, <laughs> maybe that's its own podcast. But if there's uh, one yeah, or two – <laughs> There's one or two. Want to do that with three or four people and just and just tell <laughs> stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's one or two you could share now, that would be helpful. And then by extension, right. uh, while you're on that, what's the coolest place you've you've gotten to go while you're talking about being out in the field? So I'll kind of lump all those together. So, so the coldest place was some power plant somewhere. I remember being on a power plant in zero degree weather and literally hugging the stack to stay warm. <laughs> uh, the coolest place. For me, probably with St. Croix, there was a – Hovenza had a refinery, and it, it's it's either abandoned or in the process of being reset. But we went, we actually went to St. Croix, and we did testing. So that's in the, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Nice. And we were working really strange schedules. We were testing at the delayed coker that was on a 40-hour schedule. So we tested for about five hours every 40. Um, while that sounds like you got lots of time out, it's it's really weird to try to figure out how to sleep within a forty hour cycle because you know it's eight o'clock and then whatever whatever it is midnight the next night and then uh, it was just it was just yeah. so wacko to our schedules. But we were in the Virgin Islands and we were you know I mean it was it was it was just neat <laughs> to be there. Nice uh, lessons in the field. So. There were a couple of lessons I learned. One of them that we've all learned is that there's always enough time. There's never enough time to do it right. There's always enough time to do it over. Stack testing is always a, it's a, it's a, it's expensive and it's a hurry up and wait proposition. And, you know, then you finally get there and you go, 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 go do it now. 
and we're not always as careful about and and by we i don't mean just the tester the tester the facility oh it's good enough it's you know it's like guys it would be better if we you know it's if we'd be better if we all got a night's sleep and we all did it right in the morning um and one of the things that that I wished I had done more of in my younger career was pushing that. Um, stack testing is way too often hurry up and wait. And it's way too often that you come on site at six in the morning and you don't start testing until four or five o'clock in the evening. And then you do four hours of testing and then you do the the really technical, detailed sampling train recovery at midnight. And it's just, I wish I had been I, I wish I wish back then I had the strength or courage to say, guys, it's time for us to to be done for today. It's time yeah. for us to be to be finished for today. We need to come back in the morning and do this right. That sitting here and abusing this team for another six or eight hours is just that, and it's and it's um, jeopardizing our data quality. It's jeopardizing our staff. It's jeopardizing safety. Safety has changed inordinately over the last 40 years. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, 40 years ago, we just went out. We just did it, you know. Um, you wore earplugs, maybe. Um, now to go out in the field, everywhere you go is FR, everywhere is earplugs. Most places are high-vis. And so, and, and I'm going to go back to that sample train thing because it, it just makes me nuts. You know, the very visible part of sampling, stack sampling, is the stack, right? You go up on the stack, you take the equipment, you have the glass and you have the ice and you get the heaters and you're pushing the probe in and you're pushing the probe out and you got guys sitting there and they're taking data. And then that stuff gets carried down to the lab and it just magically turns into samples, except that that's the point where the worst mistakes can happen because that's the point where everything's open. That's the point where you can contaminate it. That's the point where you can spill it. That's the point where you can lose it. That's the point where if you're not careful, bad stuff happens. And the idea of doing that after 16 hours is also very frightening, but yep. you know, anyway, um, those are the things that, that I wish I had learned earlier. Best lessons. I think the best lesson is taking a deep breath and making sure that the unit is running the way you want to run so that the data you get is best representative of what you want it to be. Cool, cool heads, cool heads prevailing, uh, not uh, intense it, situations. Well, it's so hard to do that because you're on the back end and because you're expensive. I mean, the thing is, we go out in the we go out in the field and we're going out and we're trying to get some data, and it's an expensive proposition. The team is pricey. Uh, everyone's traveled to be out there. That's pricey. It's expensive for the facility to operate in this unusual mode. And so everyone wants to get it. And of course, everyone wants to go home and, every, you know, it's cold or it's hot and you're outside, it's noisy and we're all tired, but cool heads prevailing. Yeah. Take a deep breath, get Get your data and take your samples at the most meaningful times. I, I wish I had been stronger about that at 30, but of course I wasn't. You know, I was 30. That's good advice. You know? Hey, that's part of the reason why we do this is, you know, try to right. impart some of that yeah. to folks. So right. it's good. It's good. It's very good advice. 
Gene, thanks so much for joining me. That was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground over the last 45 minutes to an hour or so. And I hope you can come back again. Maybe we could dig further into some of the the data issues or, or get into some other topics. But I appreciate you joining. Thank you, Colin. Really appreciate it. I had a great time. And uh, to all our listeners, as always, we appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And we hope that you'll join us next time. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.